may be seated. And as you are, I remind you that our Unison Scripture reading will be read out of our bulletins today. So if you can make sure you have your bulletin handy. It's a passage of Scripture beginning in John 17. It's known as the High Priestly Prayer. It's the night that Jesus would be betrayed, the night on which he instituted the Lord's Supper. And in John 17, we read of this prayer that he prayed for his disciples, for you, for me. And in this prayer, he, he prays, and it's truly one of the, the high points of all of Scripture. Bishop Ryle has said of this chapter that we have now begun this chapter, which is the most remarkable of the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it, he says. Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, a co-worker of Martin Luther's, said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. On Wednesday nights during Lent, we'll be working through this passage, but today I wanted to look at these first five verses. And so let us read these words together, remembering that this is the inspired word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, thank you so much for the example of Christ Jesus, the example of one who prays, the example of one who lived a holy life, the example of one who knows that knowing God is true life. But thank you even more than being an example, Christ Jesus was our Savior. For we did not live a holy life, and yet he did. And though we owed the penalty of death, he bore that penalty for us. And so now we turn our attention to his word, and we pray that you would Speak to us this morning. Teach us the things that we need to know. Take our hearts, Lord, and prepare them for this word that your spirit might speak to us. I pray that you would draw each and every one of us closer to you, whether we know you already and are drawn closer or whether we do not know you at all right now, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that we might each know you more deeply more truly for who you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today, as I mentioned, we're going to look at the opening portion of this prayer, verses 1 through 5, and I've picked this passage as our text today for a very specific reason. We're working our way through a sermon series called The Bride of Christ, and we're looking at the church and uh, what the church is and what the church does. And, and I was thinking about our mission statement uh, as a church, which is really more of a vision statement. It speaks of why we exist. But, but the long story short, the three main points that are made in it is that we exist to know God, to worship God, and to serve God. And I wanted to take one week on each of those three points, knowing God, worshiping God, and serving God. And this week, in looking at knowing God, if you looked at our church website where, where it has that statement mentioned, under each one of those, know, worship, and serve, it's got a passage of Scripture. And the passage of Scripture that's there for knowing God is John 17, verse 3. And I thought that this would make for a wonderful passage to use on this occasion, not just because of that, but also because it is a prayer that the Lord Jesus offered on that night that he was betrayed, the night where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And we're going to partake of that meal in just a few moments ourselves. And so it helps us to be in the right mindset for that as well. We see in these five verses that they are largely about the giving of certain things. There are certain items that are given or mentioned as being given. It seems to be a thread woven throughout the first five verses of this prayer. As we go through them, we will see that there's glory given, there's authority given, there's work given, and there is life given. Those four things will be our basic outline, glory, authority, work, and life. First of all, we look at the glory that is given five times in these five verses. The words glory or glorified uh, or glorify are used. And, and so it calls us to stop and say, well, what exactly is it? What, what does it mean to have glory? What does it mean to glorify something? And we understand that the Greek word that stands behind this is the word doxo. We get our word doxology. Uh, we, we often sing what's called the doxology here. It's where we give honor to God. We give praise to God. And that's really what, what the word means. It means honor. It's the idea of, of expressing a, an opinion of, of honoring somebody. In, in the Hebrew word that stands behind the word glory, uh, it means literally weightiness. There's a realization that the things of God are weighty things, that his identity is very weighty. It is not a thing that is trite and silly and to just be played around with. But it is a weighty thing. It is a a magnificent thing. And so he is due glory and honor. And we see it specifically in verses 1 and 5 of this passage, speaking about glory. And we see that it ultimately comes from the Father. Jesus says in verse 1, glorify God your son. Jesus rightly realizes that that glory emanates from the Father. He is the one from whom it comes. There is no true glory other than that glory that comes from God. Now we seek glory in all sorts of different ways, don't we? We seek glory through uh, 
through all kinds of things, developing a reputation. I guess with today being Super Bowl Sunday, perhaps we could think about the football players that will do battle there and seek of glory, seeking glory. They're, they're seeking after that. I, I don't know if you saw two weeks ago in the uh, NFC Championship game, after the game there was uh, a, an impromptu interview on the field with one of the players who had just moments before made a key play in the game. And uh, it, perhaps it's unfair to ask these players to make coherent comments in the midst of their passion and their excitement of having just completed this victory. But, but the player for the Seattle Seahawks uh, gave, gave a, a statement, I guess, that, that was uh, very self-glorifying, let's say. He drew a lot of attention to himself and how great he was in an effort to proclaim how much glory he deserves. And, and I say that not to criticize him, but to realize that that's really where all of our hearts are, aren't they? We all want glory. We all think we deserve glory. We think we should be recognized. You know, even, even in those selfless acts we do, when we do things that are very, very humble and very selfless, you know, oftentimes our first thought is, boy, I deserve credit for that. You know, which kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it, of being humble and selfless. The story goes, you know, about the guy who got the, got the badge that said on it, world's humblest man. You know, and he, they had to take it away the next week because he put it on. You know, it's, as soon as we begin thinking about ourselves in these terms of wanting glory, we realize that, that we've gone down the wrong path. We've lost humility. We're seeking glory in the wrong place. But see, Jesus realizes that glory is not something that we build up in, a, in and of ourselves, that we get through our own doing, but it's rather something that comes from God. It comes from the Father. And furthermore, he's different than this football player that we mentioned in another way. His desire for glory is not selfish or self-centered. It's very different because we see this, first of all, in that the purpose of his receiving glory is to give it back to God. He says, glorify your son, that the son might glorify you. You see, he, he wants to be glorified, but not so that everybody thinks great things about him, but so that people think great things about the Father. It is other-centered and not self-centered. Beyond that, Jesus, of all people, has a right to glory. Glory rightly belongs to him, for it was his this glory that he shared with the Father from even before the beginnings of times, the very first words of John's Gospel speak of the Word, that is Jesus, saying the begin- in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the words of the Nicene Creed, we just moments ago said that he was God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Jesus, of all people, deserves glory. It is rightly his to have and rightly his to desire. He had it from the beginning of time, and yet when he took on human flesh, he set aside that glory. He walked on this earth, and and if we had seen him as he rightly was, if we had looked upon him, we would be blinded by his glory. And yet he set that glory aside and walked on two normal feet with two normal hands 
He would go to bed every night. He would wake up every morning. He had to eat meals to be sustained. He was a real man, a real human being, just like you and me. It's an amazing act of of condescension that he was willing to do that, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung on to, but made himself, Paul says, nothing. Taking on the very form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. He set aside this glory. Nobody stole it from him. Nobody wrestled it away from him. Nobody pried it out of his grip. He set it aside. It was his plan, his will, his desire. Just as nobody would take away his life from him, but he would set it aside. John tells us in chapter 10 of his gospel that Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You see, this was the plan from the beginning of time, that he would come, that he would take on human flesh, that he would walk the proverbial mile in our shoes, but do it far better than any of us ever dreamt was possible. Then he would bear the burden of the cross, the penalty of our sins for us. He came knowing that this was coming, knowing that this was the very purpose that he came. And in verse 1, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This language of an hour or a time coming is prevalent throughout the Gospel of John. And the first part of the Gospel, whenever Jesus speaks of the hour, he always says, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come for me to be glorified. The hour has not yet come for me to lay down my life. The hour has not yet come for me to be taken. But once we get into the final week of Jesus' life in chapter 12, the language changes. No longer does Jesus say the hour has not yet come. But he realizes now the hour has come. Indeed, it has come. The hour is now here. The hour of his glory. The hour for him to receive the glory that is rightly his. The glory that he had set aside. The glory that he would receive now and and give back to the Father. And where would that glory be made most manifest? But on the cross. On the cross where he would lay down his life. You know, last week I mentioned at the beginning of our service how 70 years ago in January of 1944, one of the newsworthy events was that Operation Overlord was delayed, pushed back until June when it would finally occur and would forever henceforth be known as D-Day. It was a hinge point of World War II when victory was, though not fully consummated, it was surely won. Through bloodshed and great sacrifice made and great glory gained, albeit at almost unimaginable cost. Jesus says the hour has come. And he speaks of a D-Day of sorts. A day where Great blood will be shed and great sacrifice made and great glory gained but at an almost unimaginable cost. And Jesus, knowing the magnitude of the moment, 
praise. That's what he does. He doesn't worry. He doesn't fret. He doesn't run about doing a thousand last things. Jesus pauses and he prays. He enters into conversation with God. That's what prayer is. It's just conversation with God. It's speaking with God just like we would speak with one another. And that is what Jesus does. That's what we want to do. If we are to know God, we need to have conversation with God. Just like if we are to know each other, we need to have conversations with each other. That, when you have somebody that you know, you want to share things with them. You want to share how you feel. You want to share especially the big and important moments of your life with them. You want to talk about those things with each other. And so it is that Jesus knows to talk with God about it. He did this at all the big moments in his life. Think about Jesus when he was baptized. We're told he was praying. At the start of his ministry, he first prayed. Before he chose his disciples, he prayed. At his transfiguration, he prayed. And here, Jesus prayed. And we're told even on the cross, we can find him in conversation with God, praying even there. As kind of a side note on prayer, Martin Luther is purported to have said, and I, I love this quote, he, he, he supposedly uh, prayed an hour every day, spent an hour every day in prayer, unless he had a really busy day, in which case he would spend three hours in prayer. You see, the idea being that he knew if he had many tasks to accomplish that day, that all the more he needed to be in prayer lifting those tasks up to God, asking him for his guidance in those things. So often we think the other way, don't we? You know, I'm really busy today, so I won't spend as much time in prayer. Luther looked at it the other way, and I think he was right. I think he was right to say, the more I have in my life, the more I have to speak with God about. It's certainly the pattern that Jesus had set. So Jesus in this moment, prays. And as he prays, he speaks of authority. Verse 2, he says, Since you have given him, you have given the Son of Man, you have given Jesus authority over all flesh. When he says all flesh there, it's a, it's a Hebraism. It's, it's a word that was used to just denote all people, all mankind. He had authority over all mankind. But it's not the normal phrase for it. It, it in using this idea of flesh, suggests our weakness, our frailty, our brokenness, our sinfulness. We're to remember that Jesus has authority over us. And that's a good thing. Because in that sinful, broken, frail condition, if we were free from any authority, our own authority, then we would surely be lost. Authority is a good thing when it is the right authority. Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, says to his disciples that their job, that their mission, is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That's the mission that he gives 
But the success of that mission is wholly dependent upon the phrase that precedes it and the phrase that comes after it. For in those phrases, Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise that our gracious and glorious Savior has all authority given to him, which would do us no good if he were not with us, but yet he is with us. And so we can trust him, we can depend on him, and we can rejoice that he has been given all authority. He was also given work. And this work that he was given, we're told uh, in verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, what, what exactly was that work that Jesus had accomplished? It's an interesting thing because we must remember that Jesus is saying this before he's gone to the cross. He's not yet paid that penalty for our sins. And yet he says he has accomplished this work that has been given to him. Well, on the one hand, the work that he had is the same work that any of us have. We would do well to look to our confessional standards and see in the the shorter catechism, that very first question, which famously asks us, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we can truly say that Jesus fulfilled this perfectly. In all that he did, he glorified God. He found his joy in him. He perfectly fulfilled our purpose as humans. The Son glorified the Father in all that he did. And he did this by living a holy life and doing everything that God had sent him to do. Coming back to the football game this afternoon, there will be one coach, we know not yet which one, but there will be one coach who will go to bed tonight amidst great glory. People will be saying what a great coach he is and how great he did and what a great game plan he had and and he will be exalted by the national media. But he will largely receive that glory and that adulation and that praise because his players executed the plan that they were given. Because let's face it, you can come up with the greatest game plan in the history of football, and if your players don't block and don't tackle and don't run and don't catch and don't throw as they're supposed to, your game plan will not accomplish anything. And so it is that that Jesus executed the Father's game plan perfectly. And in so doing, the Father receives glory. You see, he glorified the Father. That was the work that he was set to do. By living a holy life. That that is what the purpose of man is, is to live a holy life in in perfect fellowship with God. That's what Adam was created for in the very beginning in the garden, and that's what we are created for. 
What we need to remember, though, is when we fail to do that, it's not just a little mess up. That's kind of how we think of it, isn't it? You know, I, I, I kind of messed up a little, didn't do the thing. I was a little short with my children yesterday, and I snapped at them a little bit, or I kind of cut this one corner at work where I really shouldn't have done that one thing, or, or you know, it's really no big deal. I did this, did that. You know, I had this thought I shouldn't have had. I, all these different things, we think, well, I kind of messed up a little bit. We need to realize that every sin we commit, every little mess-up, is really no less than cosmic treason. It is us turning away from the God who has created us. And in a sense, with every sin we commit, we become subhuman. We become less a person. Because a person is created to have fellowship with God in, in all of our holiness. And so when we become less holy, when we commit some sin, there's something lost in that. Something that Jesus never lost because he walked in perfect holiness his entire life. And whereas Adam in the garden sinned and failed as our representative, and all creation fell with him, Jesus did not fail. Jesus walked perfectly with God. And so as our second Adam, as our second representative, he lived for us. And then later died for us. That was the second part of his work, of course. The part that was yet to come. He would die a death on the cross for us as our sacrifice so that we might know God. As he truly is. In all of his holiness and justice. And in all of his grace and mercy. It's an amazing thing, really, if you think about it. We like to think of God as holy. And we like to think of God as gracious. But how can those two things come together? How can they possibly come together? How can God be just and demand penalty for all sins and at the same time be gracious and allow forgiveness for sins? They seem to be impossible to reconcile, but they are reconciled together at the cross where Jesus laid down his body, where he poured out his blood. Those very things that we will celebrate at the table here in just a moment. The holiness of God and the mercy of God come together at the cross. And it is there that we find life. Verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. Eternal is not just a time word. It's a, it's, it's a word that has a deeper Meaning than that, it, it, it means even uh, uh, a fullness of life, an abundance of life. John uses that term actually in, in John 10, uh, where he says, Jesus says that I came to have life and have it abundantly. And that's the kind of life that Jesus wants us to have, not just eternal going on forever, not just everlasting, but that our life might be a full life now. He says, and this is what that kind of life is, that they know you, the only true God. You see, there is an acknowledgement here that God is not just a God, but he is the God. And the only real God, the true God. You see, it's not enough for us to just acknowledge that God exists. I think many of us, perhaps many of us in this sanctuary, think that, what being a Christian is, is 
giving intellectual assent to, yes, I believe there is a God, I believe in God, and now I'll try to live a good life. And that's what Christianity is. But that is so woefully short of Christianity. And I would tell you that the Bible tells us that even the demons in hell acknowledge that there is a God. And if we have nothing else in our minds but, but yes, there is a God, and I'll try to be a good person, then I promise you today we are lost in our sins, and we are bound for the same hell that holds those demons. There is a God. He is a true God. And we can know him. We can have fellowship with him. We can have forgiveness with him through Jesus Christ. They might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is the only means by which we can know God. He is the only means by which we can see him, the only means by which we can hear him, the only means by which we can come to him, the only means by which we can trust in him and have faith in him. And brothers and sisters, he is the only means by which we can glorify him. So let that be our goal. Let us not think that it is enough to simply believe in God and try to be a good person. But let us know that this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. Please pray with me now. Our Lord, we thank you for your holiness and for your justice. We give you glory for those things. For they are right and they are good and they are true. And yet we realize that with that holiness and that justice must come judgment against us for we are sinful. But you have graciously and mercifully taken that judgment upon yourself and so we rejoice on this day in the great sacrifice of Christ Jesus, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled, that we could have forgiveness, that we could have knowledge of you, that we could have life and life eternal. We thank you for that. Now we sing to your glory in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who for us did indeed bleed. Amen. Please rise now and sing with me hymn number 306.